Hello, everyone, and welcome to Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America. I'm Lucy West. I'm a cardiology clinical pharmacist at Tufts Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm pleased to bring you our latest episode of the podcast. Today's episode is near and dear to my heart, as our topic of discussion today is medications and costs of care. We have a couple of fantastic guests with us today. So our first guest is Kathleen Falkenberg. She's a cardiovascular clinical pharmacist coordinator at University of Kentucky Healthcare. Kathleen currently practices in heart failure and is passionate about creating progressive pharmacist-driven services through patient-centered care. Our next guest is Terry Diederich. She's an advanced practice provider supervisor at Nebraska Medicine. Terry has been a heart failure nurse practitioner at Nebraska Medicine for over 13 years, where she has helped develop a multidisciplinary heart failure optimization clinic. Also with us today is Cassie Moody. She is a senior medication access coordinator at Nebraska Medicine. Cassie is a certified pharmacy technician who supports and assists patients, provider teams, and the pharmacy department to overcome barriers to medication access. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. All right, so let's just jump right in. Kathleen, let's start with you. Why don't you start by telling us about the medications that we use to treat patients with reduced heart function? Yeah, I know after diagnosis, a lot of folks are started on a complex medication regimen, and they're often asking us why they can't just be prescribed one single magic pill that will help them. So tell us, what are these main medications that we prescribe for folks, and how do they work? Yeah, so I think this is a fantastic question. And I kind of want to back up by saying that, you know, it's so important to have regular visits with your doctor because a lot of therapies that we'll, we'll talk about that I'll specifically mention are really for our stage C. So we have different classifications for heart failure. You know, if you have other let's say comorbidities like hypertension, or maybe you're on medications that increase your risk of developing heart failure, it's really great to get those evaluated early on because there are ways that we can potentially mitigate the development of heart failure. So kind of going back to answering your question, Lucy, like the therapies that we typically think of for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction are targeted towards our our stage C heart failure. And we have four main pillars of medications that we go to. So the first one, and, and probably it's hard to say that, I, that this is my favorite, but this is my favorite class, and that's going to be our beta blockers. And beta blockers, primarily what they do is they slow the heart rate down. And when you slow the heart rate down, it kind of increases the efficiency that it works. And also kind of helps with some of that remodeling and through large clinical trials, which is why we have these four pillars to begin with is because in large clinical trials, these four medication classes have been shown to not only you know, help people live longer, but it keeps people out of the hospital and overall makes people feel better. So this is one of the first ones that we discovered helps people that have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. One of the other medication classes that we have, we call them RAS antagonists. What that means essentially is that it, we have a group of medications that target one of our most potent hormonal pathways that cause higher blood pressure. And so the three different medications that fall within this class are going to be our ACE inhibitors, so drugs like lisinopril. We have our ARBs. Falsartan, Losartan. And then we have our newest drug class, which is Entresto or an Arnie. 
And what those do is they are great at lowering blood pressure, which also, again, helps. It's sort of the second mechanism that your body has that has this negative feedback loop that can ultimately, if left untreated, it rapidly progresses heart failure. So this is one of the second mechanisms that we like to target with our drug therapies. We also have a drug called spironolactone, or we also have a plerinol. These two medications fall within the drug class of an MRA or mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. And I'm saying all these big fancy words, but basically the gist of having all the medications that we use, these top three classes, which have been sort of our main three pillars of therapy for the longest amount of time, all work together to help people live longer and feel better. And they do it by three different mechanisms. Fourth is probably our our newest class that we've added. We have these sort of four pillars. And this fourth drug class is an SGLT2 inhibitor. Now, originally these were studied as diabetes medications, but we've recently found that in people with heart failure, even without diabetes, that these medications have immense benefit in this population. We also have a lot of other medications too that we use to treat heart failure. These therapies traditionally are add-on therapies or therapies maybe if other, if these four pillars aren't really tolerated. So, you know, I would think of things like hydralazine and isoscorbide dinitrate in that classification to help lower blood pressure. We also have medications like digoxin or evabradine. Now, these are other ones that we might add on later on, but typically speaking for the general population, if we can get these four medications on and at good doses, that's the ultimate goal is to have people on medications at doses where they're not feeling the side effects so much to help them live longer and stay out of the hospital. And then, you know, the last therapy that it probably is also a pillar because a lot of patients need them are diuretics. Now, diuretics are a little bit tricky because they, they help from a symptom improvement standpoint and they help keep fluid off. But ultimately, that's pretty much all that they do. So they're kind of that double-edged sword where some people might need them to help with the fluid balance, but they're not necessarily something that everybody has to be on. But those are kind of the main drug classifications that I think about for people that have heart failure. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you so much for that description. I think understanding how things work and how all these drugs work a little differently to ultimately help the patient is so beneficial for them to understand why they're taking things, but also remind them why they should take these medications exactly as prescribed each and every day. And so what you said was, you know, based on the literature and the guidelines, there are these four pillars of medications And that's really the new gold standard. But even so, you know, every time a patient sees their cardiologist, we're constantly wanting to add on one of those additional medications, even if like maybe they feel okay, or maybe increasing the dose, even if they feel okay. And so I find in in practice, patients are constantly asking, you know, why are we doing this? And you touched on this a little bit, but Terry, can you talk to us when you're faced with those conversations and patients asking why we are continuing to change their regimens? Like, what do you say to them and what are our ultimate goals for these therapies? That's a great question. I would agree with you that more than often patients say exactly that. I'm already taking this medication. I'm taking that. Why do I need another pill? what's this going to do for me? 
And I think what you got to at the heart of the question is, what are our goals for our heart failure patients? And I think most simply, when you talk to your patients about their heart failure goals, the goals are to number one, do our best to improve your heart function, to number two, keep you out of the hospital, and then to number three, decrease your morbidity and mortality. And the reasons that we add these medications is that these four pillars that Kathleen talked about are the medicines that do exactly those things. When we look at how we treat heart failure patients and we look at how they do if they're not on any medical therapy, depending on the study you look at, your five-year mortality is well over 50%. Whereas with our new studies now, if you have patients on all four of these medication classes, you can reduce their five-year mortality to some in some studies 10%. Telling patients that our goal is to keep you out of the hospital, to keep you feeling better, and to keep you living longer is how we really discuss this. You know, I think for a lot of the patients, the newest ones that they're not used to are these SGLT2 inhibitors, medications that originally were studied for diabetic patients, and now we're finding all of the wonderful things that they do for patients with heart failure. So truly explaining to them that, no, it's not that I just want you to have another pill, but we're finding new medications when we study them that work within the heart failure pathway also to help improve your quality of life, your quantity of life, and give you more better days. Absolutely. And I think all patients can agree that they want to improve their quality and quantity of life too. So for those patients who are listening in today, I would challenge you to, at your next doctor's appointment, talk to them about your goals if they're not asking you about that already so that you can make sure that your goals and their goals align in terms of where you're moving forward with your medications. But now not all heart dysfunction is the same. So Terry, I'm going to come back to you actually, get you a, a double in a row here. Can you tell us what the difference between treating heart failure with reduced ejection fraction as compared to treating heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? We talked a little bit about the differences between these two on a previous podcast. So I think now patients are probably wondering, you know, how does that treatment differ? Yes, that's another great question. And you're right. Patients ask this all the time too. Just briefly so people understand if they miss the other podcast, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is when the squeeze of your heart is low, and we consider that of ejection fraction of 40% or less. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is a normal ejection fraction of 50 to 55 or above. While these both result in a decreased cardiac output and index, the studies that we have show that there is one big difference on these medication classes. The heart failure with reduced ejection fraction has the four pillars, which Kathleen talked about very well. But in the heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, our newest data and our newest guidelines shows recommendations for three medication classes. These medication classes are the RAS inhibition that she talked about before, the MRAs, the medical corticoreceptor antagonists, which is spironolactone or plerinone, and now the addition of these SGLT2 inhibitors. The big medication class that isn't indicated for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is beta blockers. 
That being said, if you have a patient who has coronary artery disease and has heart failure preserved ejection fraction, you have another reason to be on beta blockers, but just having heart failure with preserved ejection fraction does not mean that you should be on beta blockers. The other thing to note from the studies within the current guidelines is all of the recommendations of the medications for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction have decreased hospitalizations and have improved quality of life, but the current studies don't show the same significant improvement in mortality that they do for HEFREF. We're still working on these medications and studying them to determine more medication therapies for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, but so far they've been shown to be very beneficial for decreased in hospitalizations and improvement in quality of life. Amazing. So certainly no two heart failure patients are the same, right? And so everyone's treatment might be a little bit different, but again, the goals are to get everyone onto medications that we know may improve their quality of life and their quantity of life as well. Now, of course, we can't talk about medications without talking about side effects because unfortunately, no medications come without any side effects. So Kathleen, what are the most common side effects of these classes of medications and what should patients do if they feel like they are experiencing one of these adverse effects? Yeah, you know, they always show these commercials where they show people having so much fun and then you see all this fine print below, you know, notify your provider if you've had hypotension, which means that you have, you know, low blood pressure. But yes, everything out there, even if we did have a magic bullet pill, you better believe that it would come along with a ton of side effects. And actually, that's, that's kind of a counseling point that I give my patients when I start them on these therapies is that you may actually notice some of these side effects up front before you start feeling better. And so with that being said, we know that there are side effects that come along with these medications, but the benefit of them far exceeds, I think, some of these side effects that we commonly see. And some of those are, I think the biggest ones that I get complaints of are fatigue. And when I think of fatigue, normally that's around beta blocker titrations. And when I say titration, what that basically means is going up on the dose. And anytime that we go up on a dose, we expect that your body will take some time to get used to those adjustments. We can also see low blood pressure or hypotension with some of our RAS antagonists. So your lisinopril's or your Losartan, Valsartan, Entresto or Secubitrol, Valsartan. And things that you can do to mitigate this is just be careful from laying to sitting, sitting to standing. I think one of the other things that ties back into one of Terry's points was I have patients all the time that say, well, my blood pressure is already low. Why are we going up on this? And it's because while your blood pressure is low, our target actually isn't blood pressure anymore. Our target is to help you live longer. And to do that, we know there are doses that we're trying to get to. But the key really is to make sure that you're in tune with your body and identifying some of these side effects and reporting them and having and participating in that active dialogue with your provider. So if you notice that you're so fatigued that you can't function, that's a time to give us a call because maybe we need to go a little bit slower with some of your medication adjustments or maybe switching drug classes to try to give you the best bang for your buck or the best opportunity to be on these good therapies. Other things, especially if you're ever hospitalized and we're actively giving you diuresis or, you know, 
fluid pills, but we convert them to an IV form, I get a lot of complaints of muscle cramps or having to urinate all the time. And that's actually a great side effect because that means that the drugs are working. With the new drug class, the SGLT2 inhibitors, one of the things that I always want to make sure that patients are aware of is the risk for developing UTIs, or if you have had issues with infections in the past that you're upfront about those, because the way that that drug works is it helps you excrete glucose into your urine and glucose is basically a sugar and bacteria loves that sugar. So if you're somebody who's predisposed to having UTIs, it's probably not the the best thing for you to be on. But again, it's all about kind of getting to know your body and noticing these side effects what's normal and what's not normal. And I think the best way to do that is not by stopping the medications and not by kind of self-titrating at home, but by giving your healthcare provider a call and saying, this is what I'm noticing with my body. What do you think? What are the next steps? But you know, that's kind of the biggest thing with heart failure care in general, I think, is just making sure that you're participating in that active dialogue and advocating for yourself along the way. I totally echo that last sentiment about having that open conversation with their providers and never being afraid to ask the questions. Like, I'm experiencing this after I take the drug. Is it from the drug or do you think something else is going on? So having those conversations with your providers all the time is so important to helping you move forward and helping ensure that we get you onto the best medication regimen that works for you. Now, with these medications and making sure that patients are getting onto these complex regimens, a lot of these newer medicines, like we talked about, are actually brand name medications like Entresto, Jardiance, Farxiga. So because they're brand name, they tend to be higher cost. Cassie, can you walk us through what resources are available to help reduce the cost of medications and what we can do to try to eliminate that significant barrier? So yes, if we are lucky enough to have a patient that has commercial insurance, we can make sure that they utilize the copay cards. Some of these medications have a copay as low as $0 with that copay card or $10 copay. If they're Medicare patients, as our team, we look into low-income subsidy through Social Security. The income for that is higher than Medicaid, so they usually qualify if their only income is their social security. We look into heart failure grants that are available. They're usually not open. And then if we exhaust all those, we look into free medication through the manufacturer. I will say I just want to commend you on the work that you do. We also here at Tufts have a technician support system who helps us with a lot of these resources. And I don't think any of us could do our jobs or help the patients the way that we do without the support of that amazing team. So thank you. So you talked about the coupon cards. Just a point of clarification, does the coupon card ever like run out of funds? Does it cover the cost of medication for an entire year? Some medication or copay cards do have a maximum benefit per year or a maximum benefit per fill. I usually would let the team know which ones have that maximum benefit per fill so we can maybe utilize a different medication that has a max per year. There's only been a few times where we've ran into an issue where the copay card max benefits were exhausted, and that's when we would look into the manufacturer assistance. 
Awesome. So I think really the take-home point here for our listeners is that there are opportunities for cost savings. And so if you go to the pharmacy and your prescription is really expensive, instead of just not picking it up, you know, contact your provider and see if they have any of these resources available or even going on to the drug website. So if you go to like entresto.com, for example, you can find some of those copay cards and other resources that are available to help reduce the cost of the medications. But once again, of course, that means keeping an open line of communication with your providers and seeing what tools they may be able to provide for you. I know that even working in healthcare, all of the ins and outs of insurance coverage and pharmacy benefits can be very confusing. So I imagine that for everyone else, it's even more confusing. So again, asking those questions and requesting more information or help and resources can be potentially really beneficial. So back to you, Kathleen. Knowing that patients might have to manage medications for a longer period of time, what tools do you recommend that they use for managing their complex medication regimens at home? Yeah, so there are a couple of things that I recommend. If you're somebody who is on a bunch of medications and feels like you could run your own pharmacy with the amount of meds that you're prescribed, I highly recommend getting a pill box or a pill organizer. It is a little bit of a pain because you have to take, you know, one day and kind of fill up for the whole week and it doesn't take a long time to do. But the reason that I like them so much is that you sit down and you look at how many pills you have left and you fill up your whole pill box. And if you're not able to make it to the end of the week, that's kind of your first sign of, oh, I need to go ahead and call my doctor's office or call the pharmacy and make sure that I have refills and start that process. Because Again, a lot of these therapies help to reduce the symptoms of heart failure. And if you run out of these therapies, you can be right back to square one. And then we're having to slowly kind of get you back to where you were. One of the things that Terry was talking about, too, is that like this can improve your heart function over time. So we can actually see in some people an improvement in your EF or that heart squeeze. We certainly don't want to see it go backwards. And I think by taking your medications and taking them every day as you should is one of the easiest ways to make sure that you stay on track. And again, I know that it can be really confusing and sometimes frustrating to navigate the healthcare system and call and get your refills and call the pharmacy and, oh, they said this one's ready, but this one's not ready yet. So it's just good to get a pill box. You have them all laid out for the week. You know which one's going to run out soon and you can go ahead and have that process started. And then it kind of prompts you to say, have I taken this today? I don't take very many medications myself, but I can tell you that even just being on one or two, I have accidentally taken two because I couldn't remember if I took one. I like to blame it on the fact that I'm a new mom, but to be honest, I don't think that's really the reason. And so I think it's just best to have it all laid out and then you're not doubling up on medications. If you wake up late, later than you typically do, you have it there and it's a reminder to go ahead and take them. The other thing is, is to keep an accurate medication list. So if you're seeing a new provider and they want to know what medications you're on, you can hand them that list immediately. If heaven forbid you're admitted to a hospital, you can hand them the list that you have. And if you want to keep a detailed log of it through a handwritten note, that's great. I think one of the easiest ways to do this is if you have an electronic app that 
synchronizes to your electronic medical records. So we use my chart here and a lot of institutions do that. You can pull up my chart and actually you can go into my chart and look at your medicines. And if you're on a medicine that you're not taking anymore or you never you know, really picked up, go ahead and request to have it removed and we can take that off of your profile. There's also other apps you can put on your smartphone where you can enter in your medication list and it will give you reminders of when to take them. I love this for patients who, you know, maybe they they take their water pill or their diuretic first thing in the morning, but oh gosh, you've got doctor's appointments and you've got, maybe you've got to run to the grocery or you have an all day event and you really don't want to be looking for a restroom. So that way it reminds you, hey, you may want to take this later on, or you haven't taken this medication yet. So there are a lot of good resources out there. I would implore anybody to get on the, oh, I can't even remember what it's called, but when you search for different apps on your smart devices, you know, put in medication list and see what comes up. And there's a, a ton of free apps that you can use. So those are probably two of the biggest resources that I like. Mm-hmm. So I think the other thing in being proactive using apps and using pill boxes is also recognizing when your medication list has become too much for you to manage and to speak honestly with your providers about that. Because if you get to where you cannot manage it, there are resources. And many states, home health will come out and there will be a home health nurse that can come do visits for medication management. They can work with you for two to three weeks at a time. They can help you fill your pill box and help you learn this to get your regimen and become organized. There are also outpatient pharmacies that have other options if it's just too cumbersome. We have patients who do what are called blister packs, where the medications are filled for a week at a time that shows, you know, morning, noon, night. And on the side, each medication is color coded and it tells you what it's for. So you can take the medication, you can look each morning to say, oh, I've taken this blister pack, which is similar to the pill box that Kathleen talked about, but the pharmacy will fill it for you a week at a time if it's become to where, you know, maybe it's even just simply your fingers can't open that pill box themselves or your vision's getting bad where you're not reading all of the different ones too. So I think some of that is just being honest with providers and spouses and saying, this is becoming too complex and help me find resources so that I can take my meds. Absolutely. I think patients with cardiac diseases and especially those with heart dysfunction are probably on some of the most complex medication regimens of all patients. And so utilizing some of these resources, using pill boxes, knowing when to ask for help and having support in the home as well, I think will go a long way to ultimately leading to success. Now, Kathleen mentioned, you know, our hope is that the heart function will get better. And one of the questions I get a lot is, how long do I have to be on these medicines? Am I going to be have, have to be on them forever? So Terry, what do you tell patients when you get that question? You know, we do get that question a lot. And I'm very honest with most patients that quite truthfully, you will take these medicines for the rest of your life. Well, we understand that they're complex regimens, these are the medicines that have gotten your heart function better. These are the ones that are keeping your heart function to stay improved, and this is what's helping you to feel so well. Not all patients like us to go back to studies, but studies that were done previously have shown that if you re- improve your ejection fraction and then we stop some of these medicines, they 
do worse again. One of the first beta blocker studies that was done tried to stop these medicines on patients after their ejection fraction improved. And the mortality in this group that stopped their medicines was so high that the study was halted earlier and no one has tried to repeat it since. So while it's a complex regimen and yes, it's at least four different classes that you're taking, the most probable way to improve your heart function and keep your heart function normal is to continue to take the medicines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We certainly don't want to move backwards. So in terms of keeping these medications on lifelong, back to you, Cassie, it is possible that insurance coverage may change at any point while patients are on these various medicines. So what advice do you have for patients who have had a change in prescription coverage or if their costs of their medications change? Or like maybe talk to us a little bit about maybe coverage of an agent isn't so good and then a patient wants to switch their prescription coverage, what can they do to ensure they have appropriate coverage of their medications? So open communication with the providers is number one key. And then usually the providers reach out to our team and just want us to check to see what medication will be covered at the best copay for the patient. You know, Commercial insured patients usually aren't affected by change in insurance because of those copay cards. So for our Medicare patients, they just need to be able to use the available tools for them. So reaching out to the provider, reaching out to a pharmacist, reaching out to an insurance representative, going to the Medicare.gov website, typing in all their medications, seeing which medications would be beneficial on what plans for them. You know, there's just lots of options that they could do and they just need to reach out so we can help them. Absolutely. I know I've helped patients utilize the medicare.gov website. It's pretty easy to use. They just type in all the medications that they're on and then essentially find the plan that provides the best coverage. I know here we're also fortunate enough to have a financial coordination team that can help patients get enrolled in appropriate insurance coverage. So I think utilizing all those resources, like you said, can ultimately help that patient get the best coverage of their medications. Because getting patients onto these medication regimens hopefully will ultimately improve quality and quantity of life, like we've talked about. Well, this has been a great discussion. I've really enjoyed chatting with you all today. Any other advice regarding medication management any of you would like to add before we wrap up here? I think probably the biggest piece of advice I could give is that, you know, this is a marathon. It isn't a sprint. And when we're adding these therapies and we don't make a bunch of adjustments at one time, typically we make small adjustments here and there. And we want to keep seeing you back in the clinic or, you know, maybe through a virtual visit. But, you know, our goal is to continue to see you out of the hospital. And we do that by making small medication changes and, It's a little bit different than, you know, taking an antibiotic where you might be sick and you notice that you feel better in a couple of days. This may take a couple of weeks, a couple of months to actually start feeling better. Give yourself some grace. Give us some time to work through these medications and just keep an open dialogue with your caregiver team and how you're feeling along the way. And I think that's probably the biggest piece of advice that I could give. 
The only other thing I was going to add to what Kathleen said is she's talking about open dialogue is that's truly the best way to help you manage your heart failure. We want you to see this not as a, we're telling you to do this and this is the only way you can do this. This is a partnership in getting you better. And the only way we can know how you're feeling on the meds and what you're doing is if you're honest with us. I mean, for me, when I see a patient, I would rather you tell me, you know, don't give me a medicine twice a day because I'm going to forget the second dose. Or I work the night shift. So tell me when I can take my diuretics so that I can actually work and still sleep during the day. So those things that help you take your medications and help us find the right regimen for you is the best way to help get your heart function better. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for being on the show today and discussing something that directly impacts all of our heart failure patients. We hope this episode helps patients and caregivers alike better understand their medications and to best manage costs of care to ultimately improve your quality and quantity of life. To all the listeners of the Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And for more patient-related content, follow us on Instagram and Facebook or visit the website at hfsa.org slash patient. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. And we hope to see you with the next episode.